The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. It's time for the Culture Club and we're delighted today that we are joined by broadcaster and podcaster Read the Room, Maya Dunphy. Thank you so much. And actually, before we get into all your choices for the Culture Club, tell us a little bit about Read the Room, this podcast. What does that mean? Read the Room. Well, what do the world need? What does the world need, Matt? More podcasts, huh? Does the world need more podcasts? Uh, yeah, they do. Oh, I do I one as well. So yes, you know we, we, we all love more do. podcasts. Um, I, like podcasts are really kind of just audiobooks now, aren't they? And it was during lockdown and I thought I would love to do a podcast of some sort. I think they're a great outlet for creative people, especially during the pandemic and things. So I text my friend Paddy Courtney. I wanted somebody who I knew well, but not completely, but who I could take the mick out of and vice versa. So we sat down and talked for an hour and um, did a pilot and came up with Read the Room. And the idea is that we try and pull apart um, people, scenarios, companies, politicians, people of the week who have failed to read the room, including ourselves sometimes. Never you though, Matt. You always get it. Oh God, no, no, I'm worried. No, I'm worried. You'll be back on the next one. God, I did the culture club in the last word and she's Matt got it completely wrong. Do you know what? It's it's good fun. The idea was he wanted it to be, um, I think during lockdown, I got into podcasts, but I started listening to true crime and I spent so much time on my own anyway. And I was coming home feeling even more depressed than when I'd left for the walk because you were in your ears had the body was pulled from the canal with 400 stab wounds and why am I doing this to myself? So I gravitated towards more conversational, fun, uplifting podcasts. I thought, why don't I try and make one of those? That's where it came from. The idea is it's eavesdropping on a chat between two friends. Okay. I think. Okay. All right. Anyway, let's move to your Culture Club choices and I'm really looking forward to getting through all of these. I mean, you have such... A long record in writing and writing for television and making documentaries and all the rest of it. But we're going to start with music, if that's all right with you, because we always tend to start with music. And we always ask people to nominate the first piece of music that they can remember buying for themselves. And your choice was? Well, I was actually asked what the first single was that I bought. And I racked my brains and I realised that actually... Um, the single the era of buying singles was slightly before my time. My yeah, time was too far too young for that. Not question. far too young. Maybe only I don't know six or seven years. But I do remember. Um, you know, we we were. I was of the age of buying albums, albums on CD. Yeah. But they had these little tiny mini CDs. I don't know if you ever saw them. They were two inches in diameter, and it was 1990 and. I just loved anything that was small and dinky. And Sinead O'Connor, Nothing Compares to You, was released, a limited edition, this tiny little, um, it's like a piece of jewellery, it was so delicate. But when the CD draw came out, you had to balance it perfectly in the centre or it would be knocked off centre. Yeah, there wasn't anything to hold it in. Um, And I was obsessed with it. I only, it was only in a house move about 15 years ago that it was, that it went missing. But I loved it, yeah. So that was the first one. That's a different, because everyone remembers the video. And you've got a yes. different, you've a different memory. Yeah, well, that video was amazing, wasn't it? And the song is amazing. Yeah. Let's hear a bit of it.
cover version to be better than the original, but to be so much better than something by Prince. Isn't she amazing? We are so lucky to have Sinead. I'm mildly obsessed with her. She's amazing. I adore her and I love that song. Yeah, and to, to beat Prince's original is quite something, isn't it? Your favourite album, you've nominated Pulps, different class for us. I think there are very few albums, Matt, that I can listen to back to back without skipping a single track. And I'm sure most people have that, but Pulp, different class. It was the mid-90s, a very carefree time for me. Um, I just started university. I had a part-time job I didn't care that much about. Um, and that album I can play from start to finish, even now. And I wouldn't be a huge gig goer, but um, I've never seen Pulp Live and they are playing next year in St. Anne's Park and I've got tickets and I'm going to go. And I'll be there for 1995 me, carefree on my bicycle, going to my job in the petrol station singing Common People. I love it. Let's hear a bit of Common People. It is, isn't it? From your album, Different Class by Pulp, your favourite album. But tell us how that song actually ended up, just you won 30 grand for charity. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, my um, my son's dad and I did Mr and Mrs. Gosh, when, probably uh, maybe 10, eight, 10 years ago now. And the reason we did well, no disrespect to him, was because all the questions were about him to me because he was the big celebrity. And because I listen, because women do, I got them all right. But the final question, and the other two couples, um, I think they were quite miffed to not get to the final because we were quite lackadaisical about it. We got to the final and then the big question We'd already won £15,000 sterling and to double it for charity, Johnny was asked, what is Maya's favourite song? And I could see his face just go blank. And I thought, oh God, please, please. And he was trying to think of the first dance at our wedding, which was actually the Golden Horde, um, which I also love, but it wouldn't be my favourite song. And then something clicked and he said, I'm really not sure. I think this is where I'm going to say Pulp Different Class. And the fireworks went off and the 30 grand appeared on the screen and it was great. <laughs> Excellent. Great. OK, you've gone for real pop, the princess of pop for favourite band or artist, Kylie Minogue. I love, well, again, I love Pulp. I, I, when I came in, I thought I should have revised these choices. But I think the best way to answer these questions, Matt, is honestly. And there's no point in trying to be, you know, kind of too smart and too highbrow and trying to come across as somebody you're not. And I have to say, Kylie has always brought me so much joy from the age of about 13 or 14 till now. I just think she is, she is perfection. Why? What's the do you know what? I think it's it's everything is about timing. And uh, I was a fairly lonely 13 year old when she 
popped on our screens and neighbours and I was always obsessed with her. It's funny because if someone asked me for my favourite band or artist, I wouldn't say Kylie, but it was just, you know, when asked and when pushed, there's something so just joyful about her. Well, What's I not to love about Kylie, Matt? Well, let's hear one of her great, possibly our best disco song. Can't oh, get you out of my head. a smile on everyone's face, doesn't she? But you also had Green Day down as a possibility, which is I know. Well, I think the word is eclectic, isn't it? Nobody can stand still or be sad with a Green Day song playing in the background. That is something that I will stick to to the day I die. So anytime I'm feeling down, Green Day goes on. And my little boy now loves it as well. So Excellent. Now, you mentioned earlier you're not big for gigs and we always ask people to nominate the best gig they were ever at. But you did pick one and I love the reason why. And this is the reason why we ask a lot of the time because it's the story behind the reason you went to the gig, which is often what people remember. Well, most cultural things have to have a personal aspect, don't they? And yeah. I mean, the, the great thing about not being a, a huge gig goer in your youth is no one tells you you're getting dull as you get older because you never went anyway. And the truth is, I'm really small, I'm not great in crowds and I don't actually like really loud environments. So the odd gig that I went to, um, I remember going to a Moby gig in college actually and sneaking out and who did I meet outside but Moby who was actually trying to get some peace and quiet from his own gig where everyone was off there being. I just never liked those loud environments but I'd go to things like Juliet Turner in a church in Bray and things like that but I remember the U2's Europa tour and it was the night before the Leaving Cert results came out and my brother and I went and it was incredible. Now my brother is six foot five, I'm not. So I spent most of the night on his shoulders with a great view um, forgetting momentarily about the day that loomed large the following day. How did that go for you? It went, it went fine. It went fine. This is one of the other questions. Do your leaving cert results matter 20, 30 years later? The answer is no, no, they don't. But at the time, they feel momentous. And you had you two to get your mind off I the did. night before. I did. And I got my points and everything went well. OK, let's move off music and let's go to movies. And you have a real comfort movie, don't you, that you'd go back to time and time again? I do. Back to the future, Matt. It is arguably the perfect movie. And every Christmas, you, it, I'll stumble across it at some point or other. And at whatever point I come across it, beginning, middle, five minutes before the end, I will sit down and see it through. And Why? What is it about the, it? I think... Again, it was the time I remember it was I was nine or ten when I went to see it. And it was the first time I remember finding a movie. This is going to sound very dramatic when you're nine or ten. Things are dramatic, almost transformative. I came out and I thought not only was I completely in love for the first time in my life. Actually, subsequently, this is how lonely a child I was, Matt. I set up a Michael J. Fox fan club uh, membership one. It was just me in my grandmother's garage. Um, I just 
adore. I remember working out, going, okay, I'm nine. I think he's 15 years my senior or thereabouts working out. Okay, it won't work now. But if I meet him when I'm 20 and he's 35, that could work. And I'm still, he's an incredible man. He's done so much for um, Parkinson's disease as well. Yeah. In the last few years, he's an amazing man. He's totally ageless too. But anytime I hear the first few bars, what's Huey Lewis, The Power of Love, it's like, what's the term? It's my Proust's Madeleine. It's just nostalgia. And I am right back there coming out of the Forum Cinema in Glass Tool in 1985 with stars in my eyes. And it's lovely. I've never, ever forgotten it. It's a brilliant. It's also a movie that, you know, sometimes my dad would say to me, oh, listen, we must sit down and watch Casablanca. And I go, oh, Lord, Casablanca. But Back to the Future is the one film I think that the next generation and the one after that, they get it too. It's, it's brilliant. I love it. Well, let's play a clip from Back to the Future with Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd. Jesus Christ, Doc, you disintegrated Einstein. Calm down, Marty. I didn't disintegrate anything. The molecular structure of both Einstein and the car are completely intact. Where the hell are they? The appropriate question is, when the hell are they? You see, Einstein has just become the world's first time traveler. I sent him into the future. One minute into the future to be exact. And precisely, 1.21 a.m. in zero seconds, we shall catch up with him at the time machine. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Uh, are you telling me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? The way I see it, if you're going to build a time machine into a car, why not do it with some style? It didn't end so well for DeLoreans, did it? No, it did not. <laughs> but I have goosebumps. Here's a bit of trivia, actually. Um, I don't know how well you know the film. There's a character called um, Biff Tanner, and, he, and he's the big bad bully who ends up being in power in the future because nobody stands up to him. And apparently he was based on Donald Trump. Makes sense. We need to take a break. We'll be back with the second half of the Culture Club with Maya Dunphy from the Read the Room podcast after this. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Welcome back. Maya Dunphy is with us for the the Culture Club. She, of course, is our Go Loud podcast, Read the Room, which she does with Paddy Courtney. And, of course, you know her from various TV programmes over the years as well. And if I remember rightly, going back time, starting with Podge and Raj, wasn't it? Yes, I did. I used to clean their toilets and make tea for them. They were very unpleasant men. But, you know, you have to do these things sometimes. <laughs> you have to get a start somewhere. <laughs> They're back in Ballydung now, thank God, and leaving me alone. Let's move on to, well, let's move on to television, seeing as we're at that. So uh, our, what was your childhood television? If, I get the feeling that you, solitary child, were you? I, a classic middle child, I would say. I absolutely loved comedy. Um, from my dad's beloved Laurel and Hardy to um, when I hit my teens, I became obsessed with that sort of uh, surreal, whimsical comedy of Whose Lines It Anyway, um, Vic and Bob. I love Australian comedy. It has no filter whatsoever. And I do remember... I'm sorry, this all influenced your own writing subsequently, did it? Um, I wouldn't put myself in that league. But everything does, especially with humour, doesn't it? Um, but I just devoured comedy. And I remember... By about 16, when my friends had fake ID to sneak into pubs and I was using it to sneak into gigs. There was, I remember, Tony comedy Slattery. Gigs. Yeah, in the in comedy gigs, in the Olympia. And you had to be 18. 
And my mum said, okay, listen, take, yeah, okay. Because she knew I had fake ID. It's like, it's just to get in to see Tony Slattery. But it was better that you do that than go and drink it in post, <laughs> I know, I know. And downstairs in the International with the sticky carpet. And when I was 16, I looked about 12, Matt. Um, but, you know, I think people thought she's here for the comedy and she's not drinking, so we'll leave her away with it. Um, but more recently, and I have to say, when I look back at all the comedy that was written um that's not necessarily a feminist thing. I found it all hilarious, but it was written by men. Um, and Sharon Horgan, I think, has just completely turned comedy on its head. And the stuff that she has written recently is so good. And it's not good, you know, in brackets, for a female writer. It's just brilliant comedy. But what I've noticed is she creates far, uh, you know, more well-rounded female characters that are really, really funny. And Bad Sisters... Um, We've been raving about now, bad sisters. That is on that this is program. that is dark as well, but it was great. And um like Motherland. Motherland. And I was a little bit late to the Motherland party because I was busy being a mother. I had no time to watch anything. But that's one of those perfect things. A little bit like Alan Partridge. I can sit down and I can watch an episode at random if I have half an hour and it just it's just rib breakingly funny and I absolutely love Catastrophe it. as well or is Catastrophe one that you watch at times from behind your fingers No I loved that too and again that has well they all do I mean Motherland does as well the ones that are just a little too close to, to the bone um, but that's what she does so well she gets that balance right and you can be you know laughing your socks off one minute and then feel like your heart's going to break the next and that is you know really really great comedy I think We actually have a scene from Bad Sisters which we have been talking about many times on the programme oh, Series 2 has been commissioned Well we actually discussed this the other night and we just can't see how there could be a Series 2 It was perfect in 10 episodes as it was it was a completely contained story which had a logical conclusion so how do you get a season 2 out of it? But when you have such brilliant well-rounded characters they almost become real people Matt and they can do anything so that was one story and it's complete but I want to know I want to know more about their backstories I want to know more about what they do next and I think in Sharon Horgan's hands it will be amazing. Okay, well, we have a scene from Bad Sisters in which the sisters gather in the aftermath of another failed attempt to murder the central character who was known as the prick. And <laughs> we have to give you the warning here about strong language contained in this. I thought I'd vomit when I saw her. She looks so fragile. There's no booze on this menu. There's kombucha. Fuck off. If he did this, surely she'd trust us enough to tell us. It's not that simple, is it? If you'd seen the way he flipped at me earlier, you'd know he did it. He's dangerous. So why are they sat there like everything's peachy? It's so weird. They're just getting closer. Aren't any of you concerned that the prick may get his memory back? Have you got the nasal spray? Calm down. I swear to God you'd have an easier time off than the bloody roadrunner. How did they euthanize those people in Switzerland? I don't know. Pentobarbital, maybe? I need to look into it. Well, we need to finish the job. And quick. Bad sisters. So good. The best thing about that, the, the prick, as you re refer to him, is he, was, he had nothing, he had no redeeming qualities whatsoever. And by episode one, when you know, it's no spoiler here, you know that he's dead and that somebody has killed him. You think, gosh, it's a bit extreme. I mean, to murder someone is a bit much. By episode two, you think, oh God, he was really awful. By episode three, you would happily jump into the screen and wring his neck yourself. And to achieve that, I think, to have somebody with nothing redeeming about them is just down to the great writing. Okay. Um, what about 
plays, theatre. Are you much of a theatre goer? Do you know what? I'm not. And as an English graduate, I'm almost embarrassed saying that. But I think you have to be honest about these things. So yes. I really have to want to go and see something. Um, and yeah, I find it very hard to suspend my disbelief. We have such great theatre in Ireland. And this is now going to be a very contrived English student comment. But I did go and see that famous production of Waiting for Godot, the one with um, Johnny Murphy, Alan Stanford and Barry McGovern. I saw it, Barry McGovern, I saw it twice actually and it was, it was amazing. I mean, if you like a bit of misery and existential Beckett, that was, that was it, done well. What about musicals? My sister just is obsessed with musicals. She lives in London. She will go and see anything and everything and I wouldn't. It's a bit, you know, to me, they're kind of one up from Panto, but... It was in the late 80s, Cats came to the point and we never had things like that in Ireland back then. We didn't have the board gosh. We didn't have things on that scale. And my mum brought us and I remember being mesmerised. I hadn't seen anything on that scale. And I've seen a few musicals since and we do them well here now and the big, the big productions come here and they are brilliant. Um, but it wouldn't be something that I would gravitate towards. And now I've just slagged off Panto during Panto season as well. Oh no, I haven't. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> All right, books. Okay. Are you big into reading? Books. <clears throat> Excuse me. Books. I used to devour books. And I'm sure any parent listening will um, sympathise with the fact that when you have kids, sometimes you read a bit less because you have less time. Now, I read it my son an awful lot, um, but I used to read a lot more. But I think with books, and it's one thing, anytime I hear people discussing the books that they love, um, it almost feels slightly in the abstract. And I think that books are very like music or songs that where you are in your life when you read a book um, really affects how you feel about that book. So, you know, for example, you could be, you could read the most mediocre crap love story, but be a heartbroken 18 year old and think it's the most beautiful book ever written. And that's how I feel about books. And I think about the books that meant a lot to me. Um, when I was young, I read a lot. I came from, you know, you either come from a book household or you don't. We had books everywhere growing up. And my dad gave me a book to read and I was 11. I'd read all of mine and he gave me Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. And it broke my heart. It broke my heart so much, Matt, that I wanted to unread it because it made me so sad. And my mum saying, why did you give her that book? She's a sensitive child. But the truth is, it was a great thing for him to give me because it taught me the, the power the books can have on you. And I was 11, it was a long time ago, and I haven't been able to read it since. My stepson was doing it in school um, several years ago, and he said, oh my, can you help me? I said, I, don't, I can't even read the summary. I'll try and help you from a distance, but expect tears. It really affected me. And then I remember, fast forward, I was 17, au pairing in Paris, um, thinking it would be a wonderful experience of... Uh, smoking Gaulois by the Seine with other au pairs. Didn't happen. I was very lonely for the eight weeks. Saw nobody else but the two young kids who didn't like me very much. Before I left, I'd grabbed a book from my dad's bookshelf and it was um, The Sicilian, Mario Puzzo. And I always remember that book being a lifeline. And I read it as slowly as I could because I didn't want it to finish. Yeah. I love Mario Puzzo, but The Godfather was a brilliant book. And this one would sort of be um, like a literary sequel to that Um unlike the movie but some of the same characters in it but it was a really engaging dramatic romantic passionate story and, and we have I an extract it. of it do today. you? yes we do is it from the movie? no this is from the audio book oh good because the movie's very different Michael Corleone stood on a long wooden dock in Palermo and watched the great ocean liner set sail for America he was to have sailed on that ship but new instructions had come from his father he waved goodbye to the men on the little fishing boat who had brought him to this dock, men who had guarded him these past years 
the fishing boat rode the white wake of the ocean liner, a brave little duckling after its mother. The men on it waved back. He would see them no more. The dock itself was alive with scurrying laborers in caps and baggy clothes unloading other ships, loading trucks that had come to the long dock. There were small, wiry men who looked more Arabic than Italian, wearing billed caps that obscured their faces. Amongst them would be new bodyguards, making sure he came to no harm before he met with Don Croce Malo, Capo de Capi of the Friends of the Friends, as they were called here in Sicily. Newspapers and the outside world called them the Mafia, but in Sicily the word Mafia never passed the lips of the ordinary citizen. Oh, I was obsessed from about 15 to 18. I was obsessed. I, I would devoured everything to do with the mafia. So much so that for history in the Leaving Cert, you could do a special study topic and I wanted to do the mafia and the history. Because that's nothing to do with Irish history or the European history we studied. So I tried to make it fit, um, which probably went against my final score, but I managed to fit it in there somewhere. But uh, yeah, Putzo was a great writer and evocative and passionate and dramatic and I loved it. But you do still read a bit and I understand you don't like any sort of snobbery around literature and reading. I cannot abide snobbery. If you if you find a book that speaks to you and you enjoy reading it, whatever age you are, um, ugh, read it, buy it. And I was involved um, years ago, I don't have time much anymore, in literacy programmes where you help adults with reading. And some of the stories that I would hear about people who just never really learnt to read or write properly at all and what they're missing out on. And one of the biggest joys is when they find a simple book that they're able to read and it opens up a whole new world to them. So, no, I can't stand snobbery. And the other story when I was walking in, actually, I thought about with books is, and like the power they have, is my mum passed away earlier this year. Oh, sorry, because you been, speak very fondly of your mother and father. Yeah. It just naturally comes up in yeah, conversation yeah. talking about Um And it's hard even to say my mum now because it, it, it's, I feel like, my the lump in my throat. But um, the last book she read was uh, Where the Crawdads Sing. And she was in hospital and she said, oh my, you must read that book, you'd love it. Um, and then she passed away and it was in with her things. And I, I put it away and I, I couldn't. And she'd even her bookmark was in there and a tissue was in there. And Matt, I couldn't, I couldn't even pick it up. And I did a couple of months ago and I read it. And it's a beautiful book, but it affected me probably more than it would have had it not been the last book that my mum read. Because I don't, I, my dad used to keep every book he ever bought. Um, and books were really important to him as a young man. And so as a result, they, before they downsized, it was just wall-to-wall bookshelves and, and novels that he's never going to read again. He goes, no, you're right. And I live in an apartment, I don't have a huge amount of space and I used to keep every book. Now I don't, especially when I have some important books. I have some beautiful first editions. I have some of my dad's books and my mum's books. I have a book from, that was my great aunt's that inside has the inscription. It's 1905 that her mother gave her. And those books are really special to me. Um, but now I read a novel and I pass it on immediately. But where the crawdads sing now will we'll sit on my bedside table now for forever probably. I won't give that one away. That's very understandable. Look, let's finish by going for a buried treasure. And uh, you're going back to music. Somebody you didn't mention in your favourite bands earlier because you were deliberately saving it for your buried treasure. Yes. And again, from Kylie to this um, dreary, bleak, indie 
Scottish band Glass Vegas. Um, I think maybe because I don't go to many gigs. I remember hearing this song and I was in a cafe in Dublin and I heard this song and I thought, oh my God, that song's incredible. This is about ooh, 10 years ago. And I said to the um, very cool girl behind the tail, I said, what is that music? Is it a radio station? No, she said, it's, a, it's my own music. It's Glass Vegas. So I went home and furiously Googled. Um, and they are um, an indie rock band from... Glasgow uh, called Glass Vegas and they are now they're not the most uplifting band in the world and the subject matter of their songs are social workers and there's murdered children and there's broken families and they have this EP called A Snowflake Fell which is a Christmas EP they recorded in Transylvania and it's, again it's all about sadness and heartbreak and loss and difficulty and poverty but I, I don't know, I like Little Wallow sometimes and I absolutely love them. I saw them twice, once in the Academy, once in Whelan's. And I remember thinking, these guys are going to be, they're going to go stellar. And they have a niche following, but they, they have never been as big as I think they deserve to be. And I don't know why that is, but well, let's there's hear, still time. Let's hear a little bit of Geraldine. Scottishness of that, is there? I'm also, I am a sucker for a Scottish accent, Matt. And I love people who sing in their own accents rather than sort of generic American, Americanized accents. So, which a few Irish they, singers might they, be No names, no names, but amazing. It Seek is, them out. It has been fantastic having you for the Culture Club. Maya Dunphy, thank you so much. And the podcast, of course, is Read the Room, which you do with Paddy Courtney. Thank you. Thank for you being so with us. much. The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4 30. Today.